Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty, and all are welcome here. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine within every person. And it's in that spirit that I invite you to turn to the people around you and greet the holy among us today. Another of our traditions in Unitarian Universalist churches is to light our chalice to begin our service. The chalice is a symbol of our faith. I invite you to join me in reading the words for lighting the chalice which are printed in your order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. We Unitarian Universalists are a pluralistic lot. We have folks who draw from Christianity as well as all of the other faith and wisdom traditions across our world. So some people ask us, well, if you don't have a creed, a set of beliefs that you all have to sign on together, then what holds you together? Well, we have a set of values that we share, and out of those values we drew our mission. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our contemplative reading today is Ritual is Poetry in Action by Dennis R. Ross. Ritual does for behavior what poetry does for words. Religious deeds grace ordinary activities the way poetic language elevates commonplace communication. Thus, a ritual contributes spiritual elevation to an ordinary deed as a poem ennobles casual language. Ritual allows for a broadened perspective on life. Through ritual, a person renders the monotonous into a spiritual context, recognizing the contribution to a larger overarching goal. Contributions to family, community, or the self, religious community, worship, and celebration. These acts of faith restructure the ordinary and sacred. This is the time in our service where we breathe together. And breathing together, we go to that deeper place within together. Some of us pray, some meditate, others just focus on their breath and their intention to reach that deeper place of wisdom, that spark of the divine within each of us. And breathing together, we enter a time of silence together mindful that the sounds of small children count as a part of our sacred silence in this church. Let us now enter a time of silence together. On this, this day 15 years ago, it was a weekday morning. I was driving to work. I turned on the radio in the car 
to hear the shell-shocked voice of a reporter describing how a group of apparent attackers had crashed a jetliner into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, and then 15 minutes later crashed another jet into the South Tower. My initial response was disbelief. My mind somehow went immediately to that 1938 radio drama called War of the Worlds that had presented a fictional alien invasion as a live news report and caused panic in several areas throughout the country because people thought it was really happening. I thought what I was hearing must be like that, a fiction being presented as reality. My brain simply couldn't wrap itself around the fact that this could actually be happening. And then I changed the radio station. Then I changed it again and again and again. It was on every station. It was real. Instead of continuing on to work, I went back home and I told my spouse, Wayne, we had to turn on the television news. The country was under attack. We watched in horror and disbelief as those gaping holes in those towers burned as they played that video of the plane banking and crashing into that south tower over and over again. We watched as reports began to come in about the plane that they had flown into the Pentagon. We witnessed first the South Tower collapsing and then the North Tower, learning in between that another plane had crashed United Flight 93 in a field in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. My memories of that morning are hazy and jumbled. I had to look up the sequence of events because I wasn't sure I had it right anymore. One clear and painful memory that stands out for me, though, as I had left the living room for a minute, I don't remember why, and I came back in to hear Wayne saying, oh my God, they're jumping out of the windows to avoid being burnt to death. I looked at the television and saw images that fill me with horror and grief even today. These are extraordinarily painful memories. It's so easy for me to want to avoid them, to try to lock them away in some distant room in the far reaches of my mind. And in fact, I think sometimes that these memories are too powerful and too painful for us to carry them around in our consciousness all of the time. But I do think it's important that we remember sometimes, though, that we glance back into that room and retrieve some of what that day was like. We have to remember those who died and those who mourn them every day, especially on this day. We have to remember the horror and the grief and the anger and the confusion and the fear and the subsequent ways in which those feelings were sometimes used to manipulate us in the days that followed. 9-11. We remember because embedded in that day and in the ways we as a society, a culture, reacted to it, there are lessons to be learned, illuminations of our values and ideals, both those that are healthy and serve us well and some that are destructive. Stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves as a people even today. And to do that as a society, as communities, 
We commemorate together. We engage in ritualized remembrances together. This morning, across our country, in sanctuaries not so different than this one, many of our fellow citizens are also remembering 9-11 through whatever the rites and rituals of their faith tradition might be. Today, in cities across our country and indeed the world, people are commemorating 9-11 by engaging in secular rituals In Manhattan, two four-mile-high rectangular towers of light powered by 88 7,000-watt light bulbs will recreate the Twin Towers as the names of those who died in the attacks are read aloud. Here in Austin, city firefighters are remembering the first responders who died on 9-11 by climbing their Pleasant Valley drill tower in full firefighting gear going up and down that tower enough times to they equal the height of what had been the World Trade Center towers. It's a ritual they do every year on 9-11 in complete silence. Through, through these rites and rituals, we're able as a community to reach back into that room where we've stored those memories from that day 15 years ago and recall them and retrieve them, and it matters. It matters that we do this together through ritual. When I dove into reading what we know about ritual, I found this whole set of scientific research and a number of theories about our human propensity to engage in ritual. It's been studied across a range of disciplines from neurology to anthropology. So what I share today will be broad by necessity, trying to get at what seems to be common among those theories about human rituals. Here's a definition of what we mean by ritual developed by two neuroscientists that I really like. Ritual is a sequence of behavior that is, one, structured or patterned, two, is rhythmic and repetitive, three, acts to synchronize emotion, perception, cognition, and physical movement to potentially generate powerfully unifying experiences, and four, synchronizes these processes among individual participants when in a group setting, creating a strong sense of group unity. Ritual has been observed across all known cultures and across both religious and secular institutions. We can see rituals play out in our families, schools, workplaces, governmental offices, sports, and the military, for example. We find this pattern, repetitive synchronization in storytelling, drama, music, dance, and many, many of the other arts. We engage in ritualistic behavior both on our own as individuals as well as in group settings. It seems to be embedded in our very genetic structure. In fact, anthropologists have found evidence of ritualized behavior from even before we developed language, and they think that ritual may have been the source of more complex culture and more complex communication. Now, even very young children today will automatically copy ritual. I've seen this several times at the We Gather services that we do once a month on Saturday here at the church. For those services, we lay out a carpet and put coloring materials on it so the children can stay with us through the whole service. They'll be coloring away, seemingly oblivious to what the adults are doing until 
until we start chanting or singing or engaging in some other form of ritual. Then they will look up and join in right away. We've had some pretty wonderful spontaneous dance performances added to our hymns a few times. So ritual seems to be intrinsic to our nature as human beings, and we're developing greater and greater understanding of how it may be influencing us, both on the individual level and when we're in groups. Now, on the individual level, studies mostly focusing on ritualistic meditation and prayer have found that these practices have a beneficial influence on human psychology, helping us to create better coping strategies. They can reduce depression and anxiety and improve mood. They can reduce blood pressure and heart rate and can help us improve the functioning of our immune systems. Now, some of our rituals seem to turn off the part of our brains that gives us our sense of time and place, which can lead to what our neuroscientist that I mentioned earlier calls the experience of absolute unitary being. This is an experience that our deepest, most true inner self, our, our ultimate consciousness, is identical to the ultimate reality of the universe. That sounds to me like our, there is a spark of the divine within each of us, doesn't it? Now, this experience, in turn, seems to lead to greater valuing of peaceful cooperation and has even resulted in a reduction of bias regarding race and age. Ritual has also been shown to help with cognitive and memory improvements. And all of these findings that I'm talking about today are being put to use, actually helping people. Here's an example. Teresa Klein is an occupational therapist who works with people with dementia in an assisted living facility. Now, at some point, her own grandfather developed dementia. He was becoming very disconnected, and he was mute. He didn't talk much. He was a devout Catholic, though, and so she noticed that when she took him to church on Sundays, he happily joined in the familiar hymns, the familiar prayers, the familiar rituals, and he would look at her and make more human connection with her during those rituals. So she brought the option to participate in rituals into that assisted living facility to powerful effect. One resident, an 82-year-old woman named Martha, who had been so catatonic that her daughter, who visited her every day, had finally and reluctantly agreed to put, us on, put her on hospice care. But first, they tried offering Martha the chance to participate in some of the rituals from her own faith tradition. Guess what happened? She set up and started joining in. And then as they did this more and more over the weeks to come, she would begin to look at her daughter and make connection during these rituals, even a few times looking at her and saying, I love you. Through these rituals, a mother and a daughter got more time for human connection together. And that brings us to the role that rituals seem to play when we do them together in a group. First and foremost, they seem to create that sense of connection I was talking about with our two women, but in a larger group. They bind people together. 
Now, in smaller groups, rituals, especially those that involve fear or even pain, can cause participants to very strongly fuse their personal identity to that of the group. And anthropologists think this was probably a survival mechanism for early tribal societies because they would have been more cooperative with each other and better able to wage war against competing tribes. Larger, more regularly repeated rituals uh, that have less of this emotional context, they have the ability to bond much larger groups together, but less intensely and usually around a common doctrine or belief system. Although more recent research has shown that these differences in outcomes between ritual settings is probably a matter of degree rather than absolutes. Anyway, at the group level, rituals are also importantly a way that we pass on social memory. Through our rituals, we are embedding memories in a way that, for instance, just reading about what happened on 9-11 cannot do. We're getting at the very essence of the story, creating and retrieving the common social values and norms, the emotions and the embodied experiences, and we're creating a mechanism, a technology that allows us to transmit these social memories to the next generations. So, our 9-11 commemorations, our vigils, our memorial services, this is how people in a culture, together as a community, remember in a more whole-bodied, visceral way, a collective way of saying, we remember you to those we have lost. And even after all of us who experience 9-11 are no longer living, these rites and rituals we have created are ways that future generations will also be able to say, we remember you. We carry you with us. I'd like to talk now about the significance of our rituals that we do here together in our church. Almost all of our practices here on Sundays can be thought of as ritualistic. Our order of service repeats itself in much the same way each week. We recite many of the same words together. We listen to music together. We have a story for all ages together. We sing hymns together. We have a time for centering and prayer together. We light candles in our window together. Especially when I'm leading worship, that is one of our most powerful rituals for me personally. I watch as people from this religious community light their candles in the window, and I imagine the powerful experiences and emotions that they are holding up, and I can feel in a very visceral way that which binds this religious community that I serve and that I love together and moves us out into our larger world together to do justice. It is always so powerful and so moving. Powerful, too, are our rites of passage that mark life's transitions, our baby parade, our coming-of-age ceremonies, weddings, memorials, and the like. Our ceremonies that mark the changing of the seasons, the water communion, Christmas Eve, the burning bowl service, the flower communion. And much of all of this has been passed down to us through that social memory I was talking about earlier from the Universalists and the Unitarians who came before us. So I think it's important to note here that as vital as our ritual traditions are, the words that go with them, 
the stories that we tell ourselves, the theology we express during our rituals matter greatly too. If these are directed inward to the group only, then the rituals by which they are expressed will create bonding within the group that is in opposition to any who are not part of that group. We see this with some of the fundamentalist religions and certain highly white nationalistic political rallies as of late. Likewise, though, if the theologies we express within our rituals are directed toward all of humanity or even all of creation, that web of all existence of which we are part, then, then the interconnectedness they will generate tends to be both within our group but also directed outward on a more global level. So on this, the 15th anniversary of 9-11, I want to close by inviting you to join me in a ritual of commemoration. Please rise and body your spirit. Please extend your palms open upward in a gesture of openness. I will say a few words of remembrance of several groups of folks, ending each time with the word today, at which point we'll place our hands over our hearts and then say together, we remember, and then extend our palms again. So let's do that one time together. Today... We remember. To the universalists and the Unitarians and then the Unitarian Universalists who have handed down to us this religious tradition that sustains and upholds us, particularly on days filled with difficult memories such as this one. Today, we remember. To our ancestors in this church who created built, maintained, and expanded it so that we are now able to continue in this religious community we so love today, we remember. In this, our beloved church, we pause this day to look back into that sacred room at the edge of our consciousness, and today, we remember. To the people who responded on 9-11 by going to the aid of those at the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, some of whom lost their own lives because of doing so, and others who still suffer disabling health effects even now, today we remember. To those who attempted to retake Flight 93 so that it couldn't reach whatever might have been the hijacker's intended target, today we remember. To the families and loved ones of all those who died in the attacks, today we remember. To all those who died when Flight 93 crashed into that field in Pennsylvania, to those who died at the Pentagon, to those who died at the World Trade Center, we remember. For humankind, for future generations, for our world, always and today, we remember. Amen. Now please join me in saying our words for extinguishing our chalice, which are printed in your order of service. 
We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.